life is messy. And if you massage something, you know, whether it's a justification for a young Earth or whether it's, a, you know, an absolute conviction that aliens were there on, a, on that night or even that they were never here, it doesn't leave leave room for, for the uncertainty and kind of the messiness of, of life. Flat Earthers, aliens are real. QAnon, why do humans believe so fiercely in the conventionally impossible? My guest today is author Sarah Krasnostein, who is the author of The Believer and The Trauma Cleaner. Sarah is a writer and a former criminal lawyer who has dedicated her studies recently to following six different people with different and deeply held beliefs, as also has challenged her own. And so she wrote this book about it, and it was so fascinating. And as someone who finds the political divide that we experience so, so deeply, I find it so deeply troubling. I needed to get to the source of our belief systems and was so excited to have Sarah on the show today. If you want to learn more about my guests on this podcast and explore finding your place in the story of changing the culture, go to allisonhair.com. Here's my chat with Sarah Presnostein. So it's funny because you have a book that you wrote a few years ago called The Trauma Cleaner. And I thought, wow, what a cool name for a therapist. And then I realized (laughs) that I had to look it up and realize what it was. Tell me what The Trauma Cleaner is. So a trauma cleaner, and I didn't know anything about this profession uh, either when I embarked on my first book, was, well, is uh, an industrial cleaner who can come in uh, and clean up uh, things like hoarding or domestic squalor, which I think most of us are familiar about only in that show. From hoarders, right. Exactly. But they also do crime scenes or drug labs. uh, And so they do all of the things that most of us don't really have. Uh, have to think about when we go to work in the morning, um, when the police have been up at night, or you know, in neighbors' homes or family members' homes that perhaps we haven't been into without wondering why. So trauma cleaners kind of go into these dark places, uh, so the rest of us can continue about our lives. So what is interesting about your book is that you got a chance to follow a trans woman trauma cleaner, and what I love about this is that you remember that Morgan Morgan Spurlock show called 30 Days, you know, oh, where Morgan yes. Spurlock, it was on like yeah. CNN where he would go and like assume a different role, like something he would have never, like a garbage cleaner or mm. in what life is like living under the poverty level, yeah. you know, how he was going to make it and he would film it. And, you know, I think somewhere in our subconscious, we think, what would life be like? And you got to do that in this case. And then it, with your your second book, The Believer, that's coming out in March, March 2022, right? Yeah. Um, you got to follow six different lives. Yeah. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I write a particular kind of uh, narrative nonfiction, which is such a boring label. It almost da- dares people to uh, read something, but it, all it is is using the techniques that we normally associate with fiction novels to t- tell true stories. And you know, with the first book, that was you know the best technique for. Once I realized that my subject, uh, Sandra Pankhurst, 
who's uh, passed away last year, sadly. But um, mm. I realized that her life uh, was far more interesting than her work, which was exceptionally interesting. So that was, you know, four years of following her and her professional and personal life and kind of seeing the parallels there between um, where she had come from and how she had, you know, shaped her life. Uh, and in The Believer, I use a similar style of immersive kind of journalistic reporting. Uh, but mostly it looks like hanging out uh, to <laughs> kind of get that fly on the wall perspective of um, these people's lives that I'm interested in. And so it, I, I hang around. That's really what the technique comes down to. Um, four years on each book. Um, for four years. And in that way, kind of the duration or the passage of time becomes an aspect of the work. And I can see how people change and adapt and you kind of get a, a deeper glimpse into mm. character, not, not just the people that I'm writing about, but also my own. So tell me about the six different characters, because there is a, why did you call it the believer? Well, you know, with, with both books, it is a kind of subtle reference to the people that I'm writing about, but also myself. So um, the believers, that, that relevance was, you know, well, firstly, the people that I'm writing about, they're vastly different stories. They have nothing in common apart from their strong belief in something that most of the rest of us, and by that I mean people who listen to podcasts or read books or, you know, try to enlarge their knowledge about the world in some way, um, would find quite alienating um, on the surface. And so it started with, um, I was changing trains in the Bronx uh, and I stumbled, literally stumbled upon a Mennonite, conservative Mennonite choir. And they are, they were missionaries that came in from a very small town in Pennsylvania to try to do this mission work in the Bronx. Um, they were being completely ignored and they stuck out so, uh, so badly that I was struck mm. by what they were trying to do. Um, and so that was kind of the, the first the entree into the story and I would spend time visiting their houses, getting to know their families and kind of what they considered to be their purpose there. That led me on to the second story, which is uh, about the scientists who work at the Creation Ma Museum in Kentucky. And they have PhDs from, you know, accredited universities and they will argue that the world is 6,000 years old, whether they're, you know, geologists or microbiologists. And I was curious about the minds that can hold wow. those two, two opposites, because it seemed quite alien again, you know, to have these two things that we don't consider go together and how, how does the mind and more importantly, the heart make that work. Um, and from there, I, uh, they it was largely the um, idea in Kentucky there with these people that uh, the, if the Bible wasn't literally true and death didn't exist as punishment for sin, then nothing made sense. And, you know, how could we say that God was just? And it came down to such a vulnerable impulse that I wanted to look for somebody who had a more spacious view of why we live and die and that could hold kind of something like injustice or nonsense something not making sense as part of a bigger story and that's how i eventually found um the woman called uh, annie whitlock uh who is a death doula another profession that mm. i had no idea existed yeah um mm -hmm. and she helps people have the death that they would want for themselves so she helps them die in the most peaceful way possible uh, usually at home, either surrounded by family or not surrounded by family, depending on, you know, their preferences. And 
she had uh, been a practicing Buddhist for 40 years. And I wanted to understand the story that she told herself about why we're all here. Um, and so I watched her help a woman called Katrina plan her funeral effectively and celebrate her life at her at her own wake. And then I got to know Katrina until she died. Uh, and, and we had her story as such a powerful reminder that, you know, something that many of us shy away from talking about our deaths, planning for it, looking at it with open eyes is actually quite achievable if we have that you know type of support. So those were the first few stories. And then there's, you know, I have a neurophysiologist who teaches at a university who spends his free time desperately searching for proof that ghosts exist and trying to prove the paranormal within a scientific framework. Wow. I have a, um, a woman whose fiance went missing, who was a student pilot, and he went missing the year I was born. So, oh, the year before I was born, 1978. And he's never been found. The plane has never been found. And I spoke to both her and the ufologists who will argue that uh, he encountered aliens that night. Uh, and, you know, and then the last story is about a woman I call Lynn in the book. And I met her four months after she was released from prison where she had spent exactly half her life. She was 70 years, 70 years old. She went inside at 35 for murdering her abusive husband. And I spent four years chatting with her, going with her to her church and trying to understand not just her conception of a compassionate and just God, despite everything she'd been through, uh, but the fact that she was not animated by rage or resentment or any sense of sorrow for what she had lost, although those feelings were there. She was a genuinely joyful, compassionate person in circumstances that would have twisted many people um, into that, into the opposite. So I wanted to understand the story that she told herself. And so the book is ultimately not about kind of these wonders of human variation, how strange these people are. It's how all of us have these impulses um, to close the gap, I guess, between the world as it is with all its injustice and sickness and death and the world as we'd like it to be. How do we make that work? in our heads and and how could that open up possibilities a for division which we see all the time i mean open yeah. up your facebook but more importantly how could we be connected in that vulnerability and what we choose to do with it so that's what the second book is about um and the title refers to the fact that i believe that there's something worthwhile there and i'm a believer in that as as much as any of my subjects were there are like 85 layers i need to get through <laughs> so, that <laughs> sounds think. So fascinating. And I wonder about your own belief. Mm -hmm. So when you think of, so if I think about political division, right? Mm -hmm. So the studies show that if you are exposed to your opposing belief over and over and over again, so if you are an MSNBC watcher right. and you watch Fox News, yep. you will not be changed. You will actually be strongly, even stronger rooted, at least based on the data and research on social identities, that you would be strong, even stronger rooted in your own belief, even though you're more exposed to the other one. So what did you observe between these six people that are um, essentially going against what, what society says is normal yeah. and living you know, in a world where it makes perfect sense. So I imagine you went in with a lot of compassion and empathy for this. What did you, what did you observe? 
Well, it's such an interesting um, tendency that you just described. And absolutely, that was present um, both in them and in me. Um, and, you know, our, it's our tendency towards con confirmation bias. You know, we mm -hmm. are wired for certainty at the cost of accuracy. And that's deep inside the reptile brain. We need it because we need to be able to make a call and err on the side of being wrong so we don't get eaten. I mean, that's a very primal, um, you know, stress response. But, you know, at a certain point, it, it, it's, it actually it becomes life constricting when we're not open to new information. So, you know, we all do it in various ways, large and small. And again, um, you know, my goal is never to go in. I'm not going to devote four years of my life to the project of making fun of someone's beliefs. Um, sure. It's just not kind of where I come from. It, you know, if I'm writing more journalistically, um, you know, I might go for humor if it serves a, a larger purpose, but not, not here. Um, and here there's kind of, I'm always driven by the desire to kind of get underneath the words. So less what's said and why, why it's being said. Um, and again, I, what I discovered with that kind of confirmation bias is not that it's, um, you know, a dysfunctional overused, uh, thing all the time, because these stories sat on a, a spectrum of rationality. And while there's kind of, wackier beliefs at one end. The stories that Annie, the death doula told and Katrina told, you know, as she was meeting her death and Lynn told, you know, as she's living in a homeless shelter and then eventually becomes um, the manager of the homeless shelter is that, you know, they were able to sit with all of those uh, kind of canceling voices in their head that um, would have, challenge their beliefs about themselves that they use to prop themselves up and keep going all of the factors that went into their resilience they did have other information that life isn't necessarily so and perhaps you know this isn't going to work out they the way they wanted to but instead of kind of blocking out all the evidence they were able to make room for all the contradictions and the good and the bad and the dark and the light. And it just, it didn't need to be massaged into a kind of robotic, too clean, seamless story. So we know as readers, um, you know, but even before I talk about it as a writer, that human stories are messy. They're, they're not, they're you know, multi-voiced. They're gonna have elements of contradiction life is messy. And if you massage something, you know, whether it's a justification for a young earth or whether it's, a, you know, a absolute conviction that aliens were there on, a, on that night or even that they were never here, it doesn't leave leave room for, for the uncertainty and kind of the messiness of, of life. So they were able to sit with those stories without having to make them, you know, perfect. And in that sense, contradictory beliefs were not threatening to them at all. And they could listen to them and disregard them. And that was an incredibly fortifying thing to be close to. Wow. Did you find yourself, did you find yourself judging like the, the thoughts in your head, like, oh, this person is out there, you know, like they're yeah. so misinformed They're you know, especially when we, I mean, the easiest thing to think about is political division. They yes. don't have, they're misinformed. They don't have the, if they had, they knew what I knew, they would believe differently. I wonder you know, did you catch yourself in your own biases or your own judgments? And, you know, was that something that 
challenged you that threw you up against a wall of like, how do I, how do I get over this and not like shake them? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that, I don't think that those biases are the problem. I think it's what we do with them or what we feel we need to do with them. Um, You know, I kind of, well, you know, on one hand, I'm sitting there um, sometimes for weeks at a time with somebody who believes I'm going to hell. So that obviously, you know, I'm human and the but urge what is- makes you go to hell. What, oh, what well, is the what is the because hell I don't vehicle? I don't share their their beliefs. I'm not a part of their church. Okay, um, got it. And, you know, it, we're having a perfectly lovely time. We're talking about the weather. We're talking about the traffic, uh, you know, or kids or whatever it is. Um and, you know, underlying it all is this kind of impossibility, apart from the journalistic relationship, um, but this impossibility that we would ever kind of have a true meeting in the real world because uh, we're kind of locked into these subjective frameworks. Um, so to the degree that I can, I try to suspend my own, um, you know, judgments and, and uh, beliefs and take in the subjects and maintain a curiosity about them. But where I find myself having a defensive reaction, again, I try to be curious about where it's coming from rather than buy into the story right Mm. away, because it's all valuable Mm -hmm. information, not just about myself, but about how we interact together. Um, But, you know, I definitely have them. And that's kind of why I always prefer to write uh, in the first person so that the reader will know, you know, I'm there as messy and as, you know, partial, selective, subjective as any of the people I'm writing about and any of the people that read up, read the, uh, pick up the book. We all have those tendencies. It's what we do with them that's the problem. What did you learn that you didn't expect? Oh, God. this process. I mean, I think, I, uh, well, many things that I had never known about, you know, the realm of ghosts and uh, aliens is the is the short answer um but also more seriously um the i thought i was writing about kind of these wonders of human diversity and difference and our kind of strangeness and our unknowability to each other but you know four years after i was writing about the ways in which we're very similar and the ways in which we actually have this tendency to conceal our vulnerability within these very finely wrought fortresses of story. And we could actually be using that vulnerability to connect. And instead, we have these tendencies to, you know, run away from each other. So why are we so tied to our beliefs? Why is it so hard to be open? I mean, I think that it's those kind of reptilian old brain survival impulses in a context where we have the ability to connect, you know, through, you know, the world's become much smaller. So, you know, where we'd love to think that that is, you know, a connecting force and something that we would use for our collective good. It seems that it's, we've just managed to find the threats or perceived threats in increased proximity, um, which is a very sad and scary, uh, Thing if you think that we're locked into this as a human tendency, I don't. I mean, I think that, you know, as we face whatever the issues are, um, you know, the climate, the pandemic, I do think that, you know, again, this is not my, my, my one source, but I always do remember Mr. Rogers saying, you know, look for the helpers. Like, mm-hmm. it, so the, we do have people who are, say, you know, 
who will be happy to, you know, look for the possibilities in something that seems quite disastrous. Um, but our, if we give in to our kind of smaller fear-based impulses, that's, you know, that's the division. I just wonder about the layer of anxiety collectively, you know, that, that we are experiencing gives that tiger brain of like, you know, we're always in threat, always in danger. And that, I think, I don't know that enough merit is given to that feeling mm. on social media that mm. I believe in X and then you're attacked, you know, yeah. you're attacked, your beliefs are attacked. So I wonder from a, a belief perspective or even just a higher power, mm. I understand that there is a connection of a tendency or a hardwiring to believe that there is a higher power. Can you talk more about that? Oh, I mean, I think that, well, you know, firstly, just in, in response to the first part of that kind of observation, which I think is so, is so astute, Carl Jung said that all fanaticism is a sign of repressed doubt. So, you know, as we have this, mm. you know, mm. of information. I never heard that before. Oh, well, they, oh, Carl Jung is a cool guy. I think yeah, anything, <laughs> many things that are clever come back to Jung. But, you know, this kind of oh, increase of information, increase of everything is accessible. And it doesn't fit with old models that we've been handed down. It doesn't fit with, you know, one way of looking at the world, whether that's religion or, you know, whether that, whether that's a certain political view or a certain kind of uh, cultural view. You know, we don't have the luxury of only knowing what's in our own backyard anymore. And, you know, whether we see that as a threat response or something that could actually aid in survival um, really depends on those models that we're brought up with. But it doesn't mean we're locked into that forever. So it will involve sitting in great discomfort and walking through a sort of fire as, you know, what we believe very strongly about ourselves and each other and the world around us is, you know, contradicted just by the sheer volume of other voices. And if you can make it to the other side of that without running away from it, then that's where the possibilities open up. But very few of us, you know, myself included, are okay with just being uncomfortable all the time. Mm. Is belief the same as hope? Oh, that's very interesting. I, I, I think that they might be opposing tendencies. Um, I haven't thought about it. It's such a deep question. But, you know, where hope kind of allows space for the unknown, I think belief is based on certainties in the absence of knowledge. Mm. And so in that mm. sense, they might be kind of opposed values. Interesting. Mm. But maybe not. I, I mean, <laughs> well, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, you know, when you have your belief system and then you have the social identities that are layered on top of it, there's such a, there's such a, a resistance to, to go outside of that, you know, like the yeah. social identity of who am I as a mother, as a, you know, you, you're an attorney, you know, like you're, a, you have a, a legal background and you're a, don't tell me you are a, uh, sentencing. Yes. Lawyer. Good. Yes. I, how did, is, how did all of that, uh, apply? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always say to friends who, you know, say, can you look at this? Could you help me? Like, you don't want me to help you because my special, <laughs> I'm going to prosecute you. <laughs> my specialization, I come in at the, like, uh, to look at purely, uh, you know, on the papers, what's happening in the criminal appeal. So the bad stuff is already done if you need me. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, in another life, I really 
um, had a very different profession. Um, and I have those tendencies still. I mean, you know, creative writing uh, as, as a job doesn't lend itself to the personality values of wanting to account for every six minute block of your day and thinking that every, every problem has a very clean, replicable solution. Um, and that's very much my, my tendency. That's, you know, my academic background and my legal background. Um, and when I started writing professionally, which happened around the time of my first book, um, you know, you have to sit in a bit of discomfort because, you know, what everything. What made you go that route? What made you go that route? Uh, well, I had always been writing in private um, since I was little. And I wrote all through college and my 20s, and I would carve out little bits of time. Um, I guess I can say this now. My boss is probably not listening or I can't do anything anymore. But I, you know, take the occasional sick day and just write all day and um, or, you know, just stay later and, and write for myself. And I didn't show anyone or submit anything for decades. Um, and then I had gone over and done my PhD and I was doing kind of research, academic research. And that's when I met Sandra, who was, uh, the, who the first book was about. And I, you know, it's kind of just that damn dread when you know that something's going to be a book, which is not a fun thing to do. It's kind of more of a calling and you just, and it was just an acceptance that the, a book will be written. I will do it. I don't know how it'll happen, but you know, I'll do this in my spare time. And, and I did. So that's kind of, and eventually I was doing that more than I was doing the other thing. And I couldn't do two full-time professions because I'm also a mom. So here I am. I, yeah, that, that's where my life has panned out so far. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder what, what do you hope people feel or get once they read this book? Oh, well, I try to leave white space. We are very uncomfortable both as readers and writers with, with white space, but I, I would ideally have a reader that wants to do the connecting work for themselves and fill in unknowns with their, with their own questions um, and kind of see that their preconceived categories or perceptual shorthand for all the information that we're hit with about the world and other people and people who are other is not as self-evident as we first thought it was. And then mm. I would love for them to take that next step and say, well, what about me that I thought was self-evident to myself is, mm. is perhaps also other, otherwise. What other possibilities exist for myself? So if that can, you know, if that's a, a reaction, then a sort of dialogue does take place. Um, I mean, I always love when people contact me, but um, it's, it's, you know, when I'm sending out a thought and it's received by a reader, I mean, that's some strange magic that I think we take for granted all the time, you know, the technology of a book. But ideally, it would have that kind of a, uh, a dialogue taking place with my readers. What do you know that you wish other people could know? Oh, gosh. I don't think anything. I mean, that's probably why I write about <laughs> I'm writing to find out what I think. Um, so, I mean, I wish I could capture the feeling of what it, what it is like to sit with somebody who you've been conditioned in your, you know, cultural capsule or your relational mm. containers 
to think of as kooky or you know misguided or fanatic or wrong and to know what it feels like to sit down and have lunch and hang out with them while they're doing their laundry or go for a walk with them and their kids and have that kind of rock solid knowledge that we all start off exactly the same and there are more possibilities for ending up um kind of in a in a sort of community than the than the kind of societies that we've built that there are other ways of doing things yeah so i'm thinking about if i had an experience like you to be able to sit with people you probably look at the world and people that you might be taken aback by, you know, by their belief system, by how they live their life, whatever, or even run the other way. Do you find yourself gravitating towards different people? Like I'm thinking about the pathway to hope, you know, like oh, I've, yeah. done, I've done podcast episodes, like is there, you know, hope to unite the left and the right? Is there any hope for coming together? Because what I feel like is that's what we want. We just don't know how. We don't know the bridge. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, if I didn't have hope, I couldn't write anything. Um, I, I absolutely think that so many of our current responses and reflexes are conditioned over time and they're subtly supported in the culture that we built around us and in the systems that support it. But, you know, when you think about what true change looks like it's not tinkering it's not you know making a slight amendment to rules of social media use or you know you know it's not even you know structural changes or policy changes it's it has to be a relational change and you can't have relational change without internal change so mm. i think that absolutely we are capable of doing everything so much better but we are terrified of sitting with ourselves um, and realizing what that will mean. It will mean, you know, you'd have to relinquish always being right. You'd have to relinquish your certainties. You'd have to relinquish the stories that you've told yourself about the things that you probably know aren't good enough, um, but you've made work in your mind because you can't bear the challenge to your, you know, self-concept that would come with acknowledging what is. So that's incredibly hard work. That's a lifetime's work for just one individual. Um, but I do think that we could have a critical mass of people doing that work. And indeed we do. I mean, you look around, there's so many people doing such good work. Um, they're not, you know, they're not often the loudest voices, but again, you know, we have to have hope. Do you think the pandemic has helped people be more open or closed to that? Because I think people are reevaluating their lives in such a big way right now, where I feel like, um, because people are really taking stock and kind of mm. looking inside a little bit and maybe shifting the paradigm, do you feel like it, it, uh, we might have an easier time or, or am I, uh, with, do I have some rose colored glasses? No, I mean, I, I, I would hope that's what's happening. And, you know, there's a, um, an, an artist, an Australian artist, her name is Sarah Firth, and she had done recently kind of a um, cartoon or comic style series of the fact that as she was taking her walks, her daily walks, she'd see her neighbors, um, you know, who had used the time at home to clean out their old drawers and throw out pieces of themselves and their lives that they no longer needed. And then she'd observe other people coming around and looking at it and picking up things that they thought they could use and how beautiful mm. the possibilities of this 
unprecedented situation we find ourselves in, we all find ourselves in, could could be. But again, I mean, something that causes us to have immediate fear for ourselves and our loved ones, um, that has changed the very ways we conceive of the most fundamental parts of our lives, from our health to the way we work, um, to the way you know we physically move in, in the spaces around us, our knee-jerk reaction to that will be a fear-based one. And so we kind of meet our prejudices and our hatreds and our assumptions now more than ever. And in the absence of any kind of viable alternative, that's real, you know, that's a, to borrow from one of my subjects, that is a baptism by fire, but it's not impossible. And, you know, the impetus is so, so strong. So we have a equally great reason for sitting in that discomfort. Um, you know, it's much more immediate than the climate crisis for many people. Um, and I think it's, you know, it, it should be a time of, of great hope in equal, you know, proportion to the fear. But that's not what we see when we open our Facebook or the newspaper, of course. Um, but maybe that's what's kind of coursing beneath it. Well, I love that your book seems to really address the nuance that we all have, but just never acknowledge that it's there, you know, um, it sounds like I, I can't wait to read this book. How can people find you, Sarah? How can people read the book? Oh, well, the book is out through Tin House um, in uh, March and it's available through any bookstore or website. Um, and I'm on Twitter. I'm De La Sarah, D-E-L-A-S-A-R-A-H or on Instagram, Sarah K. Writes. Um, and I'm always interested in hearing people's stories. They, you know, when I teach writing, people say, oh, you're so lucky to have found these stories. And, you know, yes, there's an element of luck, but there's more stories than there are people. So they're everywhere. And I, when I hear from people about their stories, it's just the most beautiful thing. So, um, we know. could be featured in your next book. Please reach <laughs> out to Sarah. <laughs> you could, you could, <laughs> you could, uh, you could have that, um, distinction. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I'm excited for you and congratulations on the release of The Believer. And uh, I hope it sees the same kind of success that The Trauma Cleaner did, if not more. Thank um, you so much, It really Allison. makes an impact. Yeah, it's been a joy. Thanks. I admire Sarah Krasnostein so much for her commitment and dedication to investigating why we believe what we believe. And also, I found myself daydreaming about what life would be like if I got, as a journalist, went to, around to follow interesting people around and asking more and more of my favorite question, why? I highly recommend you pick up Sarah's book, The Believer. And if you'd like to connect with her, I put all of her information in the show notes. If you'd like to connect with me, and I hope you do, Go to allisonhair.com and your life will automatically improve. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.